Trail and Ultra Runners, welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I'm your host, Coach Jason Coop, and on this episode of the podcast, I have biomechanics researcher and coach Max Paquette. Max is an associate professor at the University of Memphis, and he recently produced a series of papers all about training load and the different ways we can track and inform training using these different types of training load. Most trail runners will track miles and they'll track vertical in order to determine training volume. But tracking training, particularly for trail runners, should not be limited to strictly tracking volume. Trail runners should also be tracking training load, of which there are several different flavors and they all attempt to quantify not only the training volume, like miles and vertical, but also the intensity of training into a value or score. These systems range from Bannister's TRIMP system, which is a heart rate and a time-based system, Training Peak's training stress score, which I use a lot, and Strava's relative effort, which is formerly known as Suffer Score. But tracking training load is not as simple as it appears to be. Cardiovascular load is different than musculoskeletal load. Running 10 kilometers hard is markedly different than running 10 kilometers easy, even though the mileage is exactly the same. So we dig into all of this in this interview, and I have to say I learned a lot, and I hope you do too. So let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Max Paquette. One of the reasons I wanted to get together with you is because, you know, you're, you are a scientist, you're a researcher, but you're also a coach. And mm-hmm. I always find the people who can blend both of those worlds really fascinating right. because it's not everybody that can do it. Uh, we meet coaches that, that don't have a good grip on sports science and we meet uh, people in the research field or in academia that just can't, can't figure out how to like work with athletes or make it translatable to athletes so the ones that do both I always have a keen kind of kind of interest in how did you fall into that dual role just from you from you personally well yeah I was um I was a runner uh at the University of Guelph in Canada and I ran you know a bunch and I was just loved running and while I was a runner though I always got I was always interested in both the science behind training and injuries and things like that. And then of course, also the science and the art behind coaching. And um, so I've always, I always picked my coach's brains about coaching, why we're doing these workouts, you know, why are we doing them at this, at this time of year, Um, you know, and then uh, what was the science brought behind the decisions. And then when I got more into science, I was my professors, you know, okay why would, you know, a coach make you do this or why would an athlete want to do this at this, you know, so just trying to kind of marry everything together. And, um, and that, you know, I think just asking those questions over time, sort of really leads to more questions as, as you know, and, and then you're like, well, you know, maybe I could study these things. And when I finished my master's degree, you know, I, I wasn't sure I wanted to do a PhD, but then when I realized that I'm from Canada originally and in Canada, it's pretty rare for people to be able to focus solely on running, you know, science as their primary research area, just because of the funding modules and expectations, uh, uh, funding model, sorry. And then, uh, but then I, you know, I realized in the U S there are lots of sports science or, you know, exercise science programs, PhD level and biomechanics focus, physiology focus. So I went down the biomechanics path, um, you know, which turns out in addition to physiology really works well with coaching, especially from an injury standpoint, but also from a monitoring of, of training standpoint. So then I got really deep into the biomechanics stuff. And then I almost got to a point where I was, I, I was feeling out of touch with, with the real world, if you will, right? Like we're doing this in-depth analysis, these fancy models and this and that, and and I kept thinking back to my running coaching background and thinking like, this is really hard to translate to a coach, right? Um, and it's not like science always has to translate to coaching and application, but that that didn't make me happy in, in that I, I wanted to do research that could then be, you know, discussed with the coach and how to apply that to daily training and, and return to running or rehab and so on and so forth. So that's kind of how it got me. That's what got me where I am. Um, that kind of process. You mentioned this, this, 
this aspect that we're going to jump right into it and just cut out all the normal chit chat <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of, of like asking questions. And then those open up more questions and those open up more questions. Cause you always, yeah. you don't know what you don't know. Right. And every time you go yeah. down one of those things, it seems like a rabbit hole. And one of the things I was really keen to talk to you about is this piece of commentary that, that, um, uh, that you produced along with, uh, Chris Nipier, Richard Willey and uh, Trent Stellingworth. And it's all about quantifying training load. And yeah. I went through the same thing. I was a runner, right? We're all runners. And the first thing you do when you're a runner and you get a training log is you start logging miles mm -hmm. as a quantification of yeah. training volume, right? right. Exactly. And, and, and since that time, this, this notion of training load has start has started to come to the forefront and I feel like it's been this like golden goose in running cycling and triathlon that coaches are trying to ever elusively chase like how high can they push their training load what the right type is what the acute to chronic ratio is in order to you know predict or prevent injury and all these other things and you produce this really insightful piece of commentary that kind of tore apart training load in this way that I, I had I had always thought about but I couldn't I couldn't as eloquently put it into words as you did so what what, what was the genesis of that and then we're going to go down and, and talk about the different ways that we can actually quantify training load oh well thanks for the kind comment about the uh, eloquence of the of the, of the commentary <laughs> but um, yeah I mean w w the reason for it is what you just described is just you know, everybody does it. Everybody does mileage. Right. Um, and that's one of the things I always asked about was you know, like, why, why are we so caught up and obsessed with mileage? I mean, what does it mean from a, from a mechanical standpoint, from a physiological standpoint? And the answers I always got from coaches was always, well, you need to run mileage to be better. And, uh, or you need to run X amount of miles to be able to run whatever, Right. It's, it was always about mileage and thresholds and specific targets. And I just it didn't make sense to me because I kept seeing runners, you know, distance runners, you know, so like 5K to longer, basically, or 10K longer. They, some people would run, you know, a ton of miles and, and be good. Others would run a ton of miles and not be good and not improve or be tired and beat up and vice versa. Right. Some would run 40 miles, 30 miles and be really good. And others would run 30, 40 miles and not be good, you know, not have enough. So, it was clear to me that, you know, mileage wasn't it. It wasn't the, the, the predictor of performance, you know? Um, and I think uh, because of the history of sports science and training monitoring uh, across the world in various sports, so team sports, cycling, uh, other, I mean, basically any sport you can think of and any tasks, so like pitching, for example, in, in baseball, uh, uh, cricket, bowling, for example, all these different sports, soccer, football, uh, lacrosse, so on, rugby, um, the, the concept of training load has been used for, you know, since the, you know, probably 50s, 60s. It really kind of came into prominence in the science world in the 60s, 70s with Carl Foster and Eric Bannister. Um, but it, and it's trickled into endurance sports, uh, you know, uh, uh, rowing has been one that's been that has used training loads for decades. Cycling has been using, you know, different measures and just distance, right? So in cycling, obviously, it's about wattage all the time. People are obsessed with wattage, so we could have that conversation <laughs> separately. Um, and, and so, but in the last probably fifteen years, there's probably been more discussion around training load and RPE and including heart rate and other other measures to quantify running. Um, and you, you know, I think. You, one of the things that's important to, to, to think about is, um, you know, a lot of coaches, so you mentioned, you know, coaches are chasing this and I'm not sure coaches are in general are chasing this. I think it's being sort of forced down their throats. Mm. And as a result, coaches have to sort of react, react to that and, and, and like, okay, what do I do with this? I need to figure this out. I need to, I need to make it work. Right. Um, and I think the way that it's marketed or, or pushed out is not quite um, that useful, or at least um, it's intimidating to a lot of coaches. Uh, you got to use training impulse or TSS or this or that, and, you know, acute chronic workload ratios and all that. 
Um, but without, without justification, typically, right? So the whole point of this commentary was to really kind of step back and give some context as to what's going on, why it's important to do this, and provide some examples and comparisons of if you only do this, here's what you're missing, right? And, uh, and that was the whole purpose of it. And then we, since then, published two uh, new uh, experimental uh, sets of data on this exactly comparing, you know, week to week changes in, in recreational runners and then recently uh, in high school runners. Um, so that's, you know, we wanted to, we wanted to just kind of change the thinking or at least contribute to the change of thinking and primarily focused on North American coaches. I do want to say that, you know, Aussies, Brits, you know, uh, Europeans have been using these metrics in terms of endurance sports and running as well. Um, uh, probably a lot more than North Americans. And I, I get a lot of comments from uh, Euro coaches and Aussies like, we've been doing this forever. Like, what's what's the big deal? Right? I was like, no, I agree. But spend enough time at a U.S. track meet and you're going to hear the same thing all over again. How much miles do you run? You know, da, 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 all these same things. So it was really targeting those North American-based coaches. And I, when you mentioned that, I kind of go back to some of the original – like some of the original ways of doing this, you mentioned Bannister's uh, Trimp score yep. and also training stress score, which was developed by Andy Coggin and Joe, and yep. Joe Friel. And I had this really insightful conversation with Joe Friel not too long ago that I, that I had just remembered. And he told, and he said point blank, if I knew now how training stress score, which is a way to monitor training load, if yep. I knew now how training stress score would be adulterated into <laughs> what it has been as this like end all be all of training. Yep. I would have set it up completely differently. And his point coming from it, from a, from a triathlon and a cycling background yep. was that his model and the Tremps model was using what, what I would describe as cardiovascular load Yep. as this dominant force but that's not that's essentially what you're saying is it's not just the cardiovascular load there are all of these other components so let's roll through first off sure let's go through trimps and tss first and then we'll kind of roll through these other like variants yeah. of load that we can start to peel apart yeah yeah i mean all these different measures so trimps and tss are measures of, of training load and uh they all operate in the same concept which is you're combining some measure of external load and think of external load as factors that would contribute to the forces being applied to the body, right? So miles would be, mileage would be an external load. Minutes would be an external load because the idea is that if you spend more time doing something, you're being exposed to more loading, right? Just logically. Things like, uh, you know, step count, things like, uh, you know, you could have more you know, fancier metrics or estimations of force, you know, like accumulated force, uh, uh, impact or shock-based measures. And I use these terms loosely, but typically acceleration-based, right? So axial or along, along some segment, typically the tibia or, or the heel, um, you know, peak amount of acceleration. Those are all measures of external load, right? Pace is another measure of external load, right? Um, and then there's in, those are combined with uh, measures of internal or physiological load, or as you mentioned, could be considered cardiovascular load, right? So uh, heart rate's really, really, really popular, right? Because nowadays, uh, a lot of the good watches actually uh, have the heart rate monitor on the wrist, uh, which means you don't need a heart rate monitor uh, around your chest. Um, then we have more fancy measurements like blood lactate, for example, uh, and then all these fit actual physiological bloodborne type things. And then there's the more simple approach, which is rate of perceived effort or RPE. And that's a measure of internal load because you're rating how you feel and the way you feel, um, it's not just you know, oh, I feel great today. It's a beautiful day. You know, it's nice out. I feel happy, right? It's more so about how, what you're perceiving your, your effort is while you work out. And that, can, and that encompasses sort of like sleep, uh, any type of daily stresses, you know, or life stresses like family issues, finances, work, you know, all these things, relationships. Um, and also, you know, how hard you're working, 
like we all know, like we all have different thresholds, right? Like I have, I know, I know my threshold. Okay. If I feel this way and I can't really describe it, but if I feel this way, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to slow down. Right. That can be hard to quantify in, in with using fancy tools, right? Cause we all have our own limits, right? So RP is great that way because first of all, it's, it's specific to, to the person and people use it a lot uh, to measure internal load. And people argue that while it's subjective, uh, you know, like a six out of 10 is different for you and me. And I, and a hundred percent it's subjective, but it becomes objective when it comes from you and you use it consistently, right? We can't compare our PEs, but who cares? I don't care to know how my training compares to yours. I want to know how my compare, how my training compares to me, right? Week in, week out, month in, month out. So that's really the, the value there. So again, uh, TSS, TRIMP, they all work the same way. Uh, it's just combining some measure of, of external load and a measure of internal physiological or cardiovascular load. I think for the audience out here that's a little bit more of a, uh, a lay audience or they're not in a high performance setting with access to like physiologists yep. and coaches and things like yep. that, the two that they're going to be the most familiar with, and I'm going to go in least familiar, least familiar, least familiar blah, to most familiar is... Training Peaks is TSS, of which yep. you've got a few different flavors, right? You can take the TSS, you can take heart rate TSS, run TSS, and things like that. Or what was formerly known as Strava's Suffer Score, which now they call relative effort. They finally dropped that Suffer Score oh, okay. moniker after I, you. I've never heard that before. Oh, yeah. Like. Well, Strava's so, I mean, Strava's so popular in running circles that it's hard, it's kind of hard to get it. It's hard to get away from it. Yeah. And we coach, yeah. we coach athletes on Training Peaks' platform. So they get access to both of those, and but they're inevitably always on Strava anyway, and they always want to know what this number is, like how this number is generated. And when it was called Suffer Score, it was <laughs> it was for sure. I know it's funny because I've had this conversation with the folks at Strava uh, uh, before before and after they've made this change. And they're basically, yeah, like, yeah, we got too cutesy with the names here. Like, we need to, yeah. we need to think about this a little bit more. But it, when it was called Suffer Score, there was a different, like, almost like a badge of honor that was associated with a higher, kind of a higher score number. But in any case, all that's doing is just remodeling trimps. It's using heart rate if you're yep. using heart rate monitor or it's using power, if you're using power meter yep. for, uh, for cycling and just assigning a, assigning a points value to it. But inevitably in, in, in my estimation, and this is where I want you to jump in as well. One of the inherent flaws with having this one number determine training stress, whether it's training peaks aside as training stress score or Strava side using their relative effort. Yeah is it's trying to alchemize all of these different things that are going on in the body, all these internal, external loads and things like that into one singular number. What's the issue yep. with that? Yeah, if you're trying to, and it's funny, we've had a couple of uh, social Twitter discussions about this. And you know, if you use a measure of RPE, for example, combined with minutes or duration to calculate training load, um, you know, is that valuable in terms of predicting injury risk, for example, right? And the answer is probably no, honestly. Same thing with all the other, you know, TSS and TRIMP and all this. I mean, I'm not, I'm not that familiar with exactly how all the TSS scores. I know there's a lot of TSS scores. <laughs> That's um, true. <laughs> there's, I've seen like running, swimming, heart rate, TRIMP, TSS, and as far as I understand, the trim TSS is what I've described, which is an external load, I think pace or distance or something times heart rate, perhaps. Um, and then the other ones I'm not too sure about, but I think the trimps one is probably the more complete. Um, but something like that, which is really a training load score, I know heart rate times minutes or duration, um, it doesn't really tell you within an athlete, you know, what that athlete is experiencing from a, from a, from a force standpoint. So biomechanical or cardiovascular, you know, as you discuss. So, so cardiovascular would be more like the physiological response. Heart rate, heart rate is great for that heart rate in minutes. Perfect. From a, from a biomechanical standpoint or what, an, how much force over time an athlete is experiencing 
Now you have to, you have to know more about how the athlete moves, right? So even if you use minutes or miles for runners uh, and, and in the ultra world and especially ultra and tr especially ultra trail world where we all know that uh, any mile is not the same, right? So 100%. if I go run a mile on one or, or 50 miles on one course versus 50 miles in a different course, the, the forces at the same pace, for example, the forces applied to me are completely different, right? So those, this is where it gets more complicated. And I think the wearable technology world is starting to make some strides in quantifying these biomechanical metrics a bit better for each runner. Uh, one of the things that I, one of the values that I like quite a bit is step count, you know, number of steps you take. Now, of course, between people, each step doesn't mean the same either, right? But I think it's still better than just mileage or minutes because if you and I go for a run and you consider cadence, right, steps a minute, well, if you go run 10 miles on a trail and I go run 10 miles on a track, we're going to move so differently. You're going to take more steps on the, tra on the trail because you'll be out there for longer, one thing, right? And you're going to take shorter steps because you're on the trails and you don't take long loping strides on the, on the, on the trails because you could basically kill yourself, you know, <laughs> coming down a cliff or something or, you know, stepping in a hole or whatever. So, you know, you shorten your step and you, so you take more steps per, per time period, but also you're going to slow down because you got to run 10 miles on a trail, whereas a track, you can be a bit faster. So now you're spending more time taking more steps. So um, I, with a, with two 10 mile runs, me on the track, you on the trails, you might take 4,000 more steps than I will on a 10 mile run. And that's, those are things that we can't measure when we only look at 10 miles. Yeah. Right. You, and, and so that's when I think the biomechanical load becomes interesting way. The, the simple thing is steps because all our watches give us uh, cadence and some of them, some of the watches give you total step count per run as well. Yeah, you illustrated this really well in the commentary, and I'll, I'll link to the commentary in the show notes, uh, but in particular in table two, where yeah. you took a 10-kilometer run under yeah. three different conditions, an yep. easy run where you were just fresh, a recovery mm -hmm. run where you were really tired, and then 10 yep. by 1K repeats in track spikes. Yeah. Yeah. And you tried to... It, in, your, the point with that table, and you can correct me since you're the author, is to really illustrate how all of these different ways that you could track training load were not just different, but could be markedly different in each one of those conditions. Yeah, Yet, exactly. If you were just looking at, at, at distance, it would all be the same. It'd be 10 kilometers, yep. right? Yep. Yep. So, you know, without knowing any better, you could be a coach, especially like younger coaches are just getting started and, and they're just assigning mileage because mileage is convenient, right? Yep. If I say go run four miles, I mean, it's that easy. But between like within a week, you know, among the different sessions that you can you complete, you know, one mile is often different for a number of reasons, but also between runners, you know, again, to the example I just gave with you. So that, that example was different environment, but also different person. Um, and you know, the assumption that every mile is the same is, is erroneous and, and could lead to a misrepresentation of what's really going on as a result, what the adaptation might look like, uh, after the a training block, for example. Yeah. I, I, I remember when this piece of software called Barada came out, are you familiar with that at all? I, I so I've, yeah, I've heard of it. I, I'm, I haven't used it or, or, or really been exposed to much, but yeah. Yeah. So you, you know, where I'm, you know, where I'm going with this. So mm -hmm. when that came out, I distinctly remember all of our younger coaches who had just gotten into coaching and then been coaching for two or three years, they started gravitating towards it. And the linchpin for the listeners out there that aren't that familiar with it is that it, it gave you a periodization framework based off of training load and where your athlete's training load currently was and where you wanted it to be six months down the road, nine months down the road, whatever time frame you were working with. And it built up uh, it built up a periodization scheme based on those two endpoints. And our younger coaches gravitated towards that because it was a way for them to easily, look at an athlete's training program, go, okay, they need to be at, you know, 120 CTL points or however they were defining right. it six months from now. And my point to them was exactly what you were just mentioning. Not all of that load is equal because you're, you're, right. you're basing it off of one single metric. 
Exactly. And that's so, so important. The main message for coaches in, in these three papers and that started off the commentary is just that is, you know, consider other things. And I do want to point out that, you know, for coaches who work really closely with athletes, smaller groups of athletes, you know, and have, have, have constant communication and sort of back and forth with athletes who basically are able to monitor the athlete without actually using a number, for example, that can be quite or as useful. The issue becomes when you're online coaching or have 40 runners you're, you're meeting with, you can't possibly know how everybody's feeling just by, you know, seeing them every day uh, or, 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 or seeing their miles that they post online, you know, whatever the platform you're using. So, you know, again, I want to point out that a lot of coaches do this very well without numbers, right? It's just little signs that they can pick up on. Um, and I think for in the trail world, I think that's even more important because it, it every, every issue I just mentioned is amplified on the trails yeah. because the terrains uh, uh, vary so much because the intensity of uh, uh, the, the outcome of a run at a specific pace varies so much. You could do two, the, the same two runs, the exact same pace on different courses, same distance and be absolutely trashed after one and not after the other, yeah. right? Uh, just because of the environment. So I actually think that, again, the trail world, the ultra world is, is this is even more important to, to, to use metrics that are individual to you um, and not focus on just sort of, you know, uh, black box type approaches that just spits out estimations. I, I had, so when I first started getting into coaching trail runners, I, and I still to this day have the hardest time convincing both coaches and athletes to get further and further removed from prescription and analysis of training yep. by miles. Yep. And instead just go to time based. And I, I yeah. can't I lost a lot of like content deals because I yeah. wouldn't I wouldn't write training programs because in in miles I would have to do it in time and based on vertical and, and, and RPE. Yep. Just because of what you mentioned, it was so so problematic to say, okay, you're gonna yeah. run five miles and you're gonna run five miles, but this five miles has two thousand feet of vertical change and this five miles has two hundred feet of vertical change. Like those are two yeah. really markedly different yeah. things. Or think of like a, a wet dirt trail versus a packed down gravel path. You know, you run 10 miles on both of these. If you maintain the speed, your legs are going to be beat after the wet sort of dirt trail versus the, the uh, packed down, you know, gravel path. Um, so that's what I mean by like, I've, I've coached people who are like, oh, I did my long run today. And, uh, and the pace was really slow. And, and, uh, but, you know, I, I always prescribe minutes for, for longer runs and easy runs because the, the, the purpose behind that is, you know, if I say go run 60 minutes or one hour, um, even if you go slow, you'll still be out there for 60 minutes. But if I prescribe eight miles, um, which, again, is no problems with, with run, is no problems with prescribing mileage at times especially for, for those who are racing a specific, you know, distance over right. a specific course, like a marathon, for yep. example, like a, a road marathon. Um, the only issue is that when a person is beat up, like really trashed and I say go run eight miles and then they slow down because they're so tired, they might be out there for 70 minutes, right. As opposed to 60 minutes. So that to me, that extra 10 minutes to be pounding out there for, you know, the extra, for te extra 10 minutes, which is an extra, you know, almost 2000 steps. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't feel there's, there's much value there. So if we were to let, let's put our brainstorming hats on, maybe we can get some venture capital funding to do this. There's not a lot of money in, in what, what this is going to be. So let's not get our <laughs> hopes up too much, but let's design a coaching tool and a training log tool specifically for trail and ultra runners. Yep. What would the, like the hero metrics be? that we could, that we, that those are, that would be the must haves, the must haves within the tool itself that we want every athlete and every coach to prescribe stuff by and track stuff. Ooh, that's a good, that's a good question. That's a good uh, discussion. I think, you know, I, like I said, I, I think you have to start with, with prescribing minutes. Um, you know, that's the, that's your starting point. 
I think you want to make sure that from a, from a physiological adaptation standpoint, you want to re- record RPE, which I, at this point, this is, you know, uh, final surge, training peaks, they all do it, right? Strava even does it now. It's taken them um, a while to get around to it, though. That's the funny thing. It's yeah. the easiest yeah. thing to record. And then, but they don't, I don't know if, if uh, Strava combines them, though. They, you can report RPE, but I don't think it combines them. You can. You have to kind of opt into it. And what it'll, okay. what you can opt into is it will basically take the precedence of heart rate yeah. in that relative effort. Got so it. so previous to that, um, it would take power and or heart rate, but you can, right. make, you can force the change and make it RPE. Right. So for trail runners, though, we know, so obviously from a performance standpoint, a trail runner never, uh, never, uh, you know, bails out of a race because their heart rate's too high. I mean, I mean, unless there's some, you know, issue going on. Right. But the reason why people trail racers are limited is because of their, their legs being absolutely done. Right. So we are trying to then quantify, you know, how much, uh, mechanical load their bodies is undergoing, right? Um, so in that case, for trail runners, you almost want to use certain measures of biomechanics, right? So shock or, um, you know, impact of some sort, whether that's using a foot-based accelerometer or inertial measurement tool that can then uh, give you some measure of, you know, what is the external uh, uh, force or external forces acting on you throughout a training session. And as a result, training block or training week or training cycle, um, to really kind of figure out, yeah, you covered, you know, 500 minutes this week, but you know, next week you also have 500 prescribed minutes, but are they going to be similar? Right. Um, are you going to change how you move? And as a result, load your body more or less and, and that then allows the coach to make adjustments moving forward to say, okay, well, look, let's, let's try to figure a way, a strategy to uh, minimize load. So that might mean let's go to a flat, you know, flat training surface or, you know, less, um, less treacherous terrain, if you will, to try to give you some time to, to adapt to that load the last two weeks, for example. So I think I would say for, for uh, trail runners, adding some measure of individualized or specific biomechanical measurement or metric. I think that would be even more useful. Um, I think it's useful for all runners, but particularly useful for trail runners because of that, because it's hard to quantify what a mile means or what a minute means in a trail runner. Yeah. Can I stop you right there for one second? Cause yes. I think this is a good point. Is that the ultimate application for the stride units and the run scribed units and things like that. These, these like, you know, accelerometer pods that are sitting on people's feet right now that now they're trying to bake into the watch that were initially designed with the promise of delivering in quotes running power. Is this biomechanical aspect of it, the better utility for those things? I I think a hundred percent. I, I still don't understand the obsession with power. I really don't. Yeah. That's another conversation you can, can yeah, I just, I, I, like I get it from like angular power and cycling, right. That's, that's objective. It's from a physics standpoint, makes sense in running. It's just, I, I just don't see, I, I, I just don't see the, I mean, I might be proven wrong. I just don't see the obsession. Why, why people are so, you know, hell bent on making this power a thing. Um, but I do think that load in general measured from these sensors can be useful. Yeah. Also, of course, given or assuming that one, they're, um, well, most importantly, and this is probably an unpopular opinion, but most importantly, more so than validity, that they're reliable. Right. Um, right. I think scientists are hell bent on validity, uh, which is obviously very useful when you're trying to come up with thresholds of force or, you know, torque or impact uh, uh, Gs or whatever. But when you're trying to quantify changes in training, we're looking for week-to-week percent changes. So as long as the, 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 the tool is reliable and you know that they're always going to give you the, the, the same you know, metric uh, if there's no changes, that's really what matters because I care about percent changes, right? Like how much more are you doing this week versus last week? I don't really care what the, the amount of it is, right? The magnitude, I don't care if it's, 100 Gs versus 2 Gs, as long as the, 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 the week-to-week change is equivalent. So I can compare the week-to-weeks, right? So that, I think, uh, companies, the companies should 
focus more on that aspect of reliability, but also uh, marketing it as a monitoring tool, not just for injury, but just for from a training standpoint and, and for coaches to know how much, you know, external or mechanical load uh, runners are dealing with. Uh, you and I are on the same page with that because, I mean, I remember when Stride wasn't even to market yet. Yep. I went up there and I was begging and pleading with those guys to not call it running power. <laughs> you know, there were, I was the only person that was saying that. I'm not like saying anything that's like super enlightening or you know, I'm trying to make myself sound smart, but I was begging and pleading that for them to not to not market it as a quote unquote running power meter to do something more along the biomechanical aspects and figuring out load and velocity and things like that. But yeah, I didn't get a vote, yeah, too, obviously, yeah. <laughs> but I, I totally agree with you. That's the value. So we've got time. We've got biomechanical load is something that that trail runners should be monitoring, which is not easy in the current environment. That's not a very easy thing to get a fix on outside of having one of those devices. Is there anything else a, a trail runner can do? Yeah, uh, in terms of monitoring. Yeah, yeah. That particular. Well, aspect. I, yeah, I, I think I think. W- in the absence of a, of a tool that can measure uh, on a daily basis or, or on a, on a session by session basis, I think there's ways that people can then test, you know, not necessarily lab based, but using tools that might not be uh, that runners might not be able to use on a daily basis, but like you can do some, you know, one or two, two tests, you know, under different conditions to get an estimate of, of how it is that you move and, and what are the forces that your body is experiencing. And then you can kind of use that. Um, you can kind of use that to, uh, to estimate what it is that you're going through based on step count. So for example, if, if you and I go on the track and run at different paces, right, you know, slower to faster, let's say four different speeds, and we measure uh, the forces, uh, the vertical force that is um, being applied to the bottom of our feet while we run. Right. So you should get a fairly linear increase as you increase speed, right? As you increase speed, you should get a little more force uh, per step. Well, then you can kind of, and, and that'll be, so the speed would be on the, on the X axis of a, of a, you know, one of those scatter plots from high school, you know, uh, you've got this X axis, Y axis would be force. And so as you increase speed, it would, should go up, which makes sense. You know, like you, the faster you run, the more force you're going to experience. Well, you can use that to kind of then figure out for you, you know, at different paces, how much force are you experiencing? So you can then use that on a daily basis, right? If I'm out there running uh, at eight minute pace, I can kind of look at my own personal curve for force measurement and say, okay, I, this is where I fit on this curve. And that's about, you know, 3.2 times body weight at this pace, for example. Um, on the trail, it's a bit harder because, you know, inclination and so on and so forth. But you could come up with your own metric of, well, this had X amount of vert, this had uh, this type of surface. So you might be a little less force on a softer surface and a little less force uphill, but more force downhill. Those tend to cancel out if it's a loop, for example. Um, so you start putting those factors together and you might be able to use some one or two time measurement testing sessions and then using those with your data you know, with your own wash data. So step count, for example, ultimately trying to estimate what each of your step means, right? Is it three times body weight? Is it five times body weight? Which would be really high, of course, but you know, it happens in some people. And from a, from a trail running perspective, we're kind of over obsessed with tracking vert or yeah. vertical, which is, if you're not in the trail running world, like you hear the word vert, you kind of get it, but yeah. we're, but it's obsessive, I think in the wrong way. It's, a, okay. it's obsessive from a targeting standpoint. So I want to do 10,000 feet of vertical. I want to do 20,000 mm-hmm. feet of vertical and things like that. Yeah. Almost like a, almost like a mileage target. And right. What you're saying is that that's a component of the biomechanical load and that might for be sure. a better that might be better utility for that for tracking that particular training metric. Yeah, I mean going uphill in general will reduce the amount of force that's being applied to your body, right? But because you change how you run, so when you go uphill you might run on your toes more. And so that of course increases the load on your Achilles tendon or calves. Um but it does reduce the load on your quads. Right? So um so you can start even like micro managing or, or micro monitoring muscle groups, right. right? And this is important in runners coming back from an injury, obviously, 
So if I'm coming back from like a patellofemoral pain um, injury, then of course, or or patellofemoral injury, I'm looking at reducing loads on my quads, of course. So I might be doing a little more uphill stuff. If I'm coming back from an, uh, an Achilles or calf injury, I might be minimizing uphill stuff and so on and so forth. Right? So it's not just the force, but how you're moving that might move the load to your Achilles, to your quads, you know, and so on. Yeah. I've always considered uh, trail and ultra running to have like four disciplines, right? It's walking. We call it power hiking because we don't like yep. saying walking. Yeah. You don't like the term walking. <laughs> and, <fair enough>. <laughs> <laughs> running on flat level terrain, running uphill and running downhill. Because yeah. they're just so different. They're all, they're obviously linked by the cardiovascular system, but from a biomechanical standpoint, they're such different forms that's of locomotion. Yeah. You know? That's it. That might be what's would be different about a, a, a trail running monitoring system is almost quantifying percent of downhill at, at several paces and then percent of uphill at several paces and percent of flat ground, you know, at different paces. I oh. think that, that obviously changing the load, changes the load on the body, obviously. Well, from a, from a training, from a training specificity standpoint, I can tell you what I do is I look at a race that an athlete's doing and I quantify it across those four different disciplines, just from a, like a total gross amount. How much time are they going? How much time are they spending running flat level? How much time are they spending running uphill? How much time are they spending spending running downhill, and then how much time are they spending walking, and then yeah. try to match those discipline those quote unquote disciplines up as much yeah. as possible. It's not you know exact yeah, or one to one or whatever. Yeah. I try to match them up as much as possible, particularly in the last like two to three months of the whole of the whole training yeah. cycle. Yeah, and I think you know this always doesn't apply to the track because on the track it's always you know right. flat and and but in cross country same thing like a lot of coaches are, oh this this course is really hilly um and and but so people do a lot of uphill running right right but people tend to miss the mark when they forget about the downhill parts because they think it's free yeah the downhill part is yeah, damaging and, and i think a lot of a lot of people don't understand that running downhill is way more damage than running uphill yeah. <laughs> um, especially for the quads right and so um, you almost have to match the amount of uphill running with the amount of downhill running. Um, if you're not ready for it, it could be, it could be, uh, it can beat you up quite a bit. Well, it's almost like the cardiovascular and the musculoskeletal loads are inverted. And that, that's kind of the way that I've always thought about it. Like running uphill, it's a high cardiovascular load and a relatively yep. low musculoskeletal load. And then running yeah. downhill, it's almost the opposite. It's a super yep. high musculoskeletal load yeah. with a very low cardiovascular yep. load. That's exactly right. Exactly right. So you have, you know, you have to consider both directions, of course. Right. And typically, I don't know of any courses, unless it's an actual vertical course where you're running up, up a mountain or down a mountain, you know, out or um, a uh, point to point. But typically in loop courses, you, you know, you go up and you come down at some point, you know, you have to. So yeah. um, anyway, that's kind of the, the way I would look at it for sure. Like, like yourself. Okay. So, so far we've got, we've got two, we've got two things to monitor in our trail and ultra running coaching tool. Yeah. We're not going to get a lot of venture funding behind this if that's as sophisticated as it gets, because that's what it's all based off of. It might work really well, but it's not very sexy. Well, I think the biomechanical aspect does cover that downhill uphill yeah. stuff right so as you go downhill the biomechanical uh, measurements would go up probably um, especially if they're foot based or something like that but on the way up they would go down so you can monitor that based on these right so you'd say percent of x amount of force is 30 percent of a lower force is 30 and then the rest is all pretty normal force so you can kind of use that to guide you know almost the force exposure in training if you will um that might be the fancy, sexy sort of platform or, or, or pitch, you know, that, that you might have. Yeah. All right. Maybe we'll raise a little bit of money. But <laughs> it's, I mean, from, from talking to you, Max, I can't help but to think that everybody is doing it at least a little bit wrong. And what I mean by doing it is monitoring training and prescribing training. Because I can go to any marathon training group. I can go, I can pick up runner's world or at the freaking Seven Eleven around the corner from me right now, irrespective of the format, I'm going to find training that's prescribed in miles. 
Yep. And one of the things that I'm hearing from you is that that is so different or the load that comes as a consequence of those miles is so yep. different depending upon the situation. And we're, we're putting too much emphasis on that one particular metric. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the whole message, you know, in these papers. And and we, we I think we show enough data now and, and enough sort of theory behind the concept. And um, but it all boils down to this, which is which is it's never foolproof, like nothing, no metric, no uh, approach to quantified training is always going to be perfect. Even if you're using something beyond mileage, whether it's trips or, or, uh, or, or TSS or, or training loads of different, you know, input measures, um, it's never perfect. And that's where I think coaches need to, 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 um, come to understand that, that they have to still do the work, you know, you still have to be a coach and you still have to be perceptive and observant and communicate well, um, and not just rely on numbers. I mean, that's the biggest mistake. And I think that's where all these tech companies fall apart. You know, the plan is great until you actually have to work with human beings, you know, in theory and practice, it sounds fantastic, but when it comes down to it, you're working with complex, you know, uh, uh, organisms and human beings. And, uh, it's not, you know, none, very few of us are full-time training and which means very few of us are full-time recovering. Um, and so no, no amount of training peaks or final surge or Strava or this and that will account for yard work in the afternoon or, or death in the family or, um, you know, other psychological issues you're dealing with. Uh, those are the things that the human being aspect and the, the one-on-one, the relationship between a coach and an athlete is invaluable. And uh, until it, and, and I hope that no wearable tech company is marketing their, their tools as like, this is it. You plug that on, you hit play, and then you, you get numbers and you use that, you know, as the, uh, as the Holy grail kind of thing, because that's just silly. Well, the recovery space is inundated with that. I'm, yeah. I don't, I don't, I kind of make a little bit of a separation between the training prescription space and the recovery space. Oh yeah. But without naming, yeah. without naming names, there are some players yeah. in the recovery space oh, yeah. that are labeling whatever they're pitching as the holy grail for recovery, which is which is obviously a big aspect of totally. of everything. But as you yeah. mentioned doesn't take into account or poorly takes into account at the very best, the life stresses, the death in the family and things like that. Yeah. And, you know, so then we take a step back further and the overarching issue isn't even wearable technology, it's education. Yep. Right. You, people want the, the instant gratification, the path of least resistance, the, you know, anybody, everybody's an expert, right. That's what people want, you know, and in, in the, it, in terms of sport and, you know, the sports science world, whatever, you know, sports science might mean for some people um, look online. There's a lot of experts in sports science, a lot of experts in sports science, but what does that mean? Does that mean they, they spent, you know, a hundred grand on equipment and now they have all these data and these tools and they call themselves sports scientists. The best sports scientists don't need tools. Honestly, it sounds, sounds crazy, but a lot of it is just talking with, with athletes and coaches and coming up with solutions that don't necessarily require uh, uh, tech, you know, it's understanding the human body, the physiology, the biomechanics, the, the, the skill acquisition, the nutrition aspect. I mean, all of that is, is sports science and can all be done fairly well without tools. So anyway, so that's where it gets frustrating because, because humans want, you know, to be expert, they want to have the fancy shiny things that it takes away from, from what we can do is when, when we can use our brains and knowledge. Yeah, the best coaches that I've ever interacted with know how all of the tools and widgets work, and sometimes very intimately so, but end yeah. up using very few of them. Yeah, yeah. I think there there are many scenarios where you can use a tool to uh, confirm what you believe is happening objectively, but there are more times where you don't need that tool to do that. Hundred percent. So, yeah. what are you doing in your coaching practice now? How are you prescribing? Yeah. How are you prescribing workouts? 
Yeah. So I, you know, uh, my, my coaching, uh, I coach mostly, um, like junior level athletes. So like, you know, the 20 year olds and, and younger up to like grade nine and above, I, I, I'm, I, I tend to be a, a firm believer that, you know, really intense specific training, you know, before high school is, is not really necessary. Um, so I, I will, I will work with some kids that are in grade eight, for example, um, mostly on things like basic strength and multi-directional movements and some mobility and just helping them, you know, sort of move, uh, uh, you know, in certain ways, I won't say, well, because it depends on the person, of course. Um, but in terms of prescription, uh, I'm a big fan of prescribing minutes for the reasons we've already discussed. Um, but also often it's just, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, daily prescription will be minutes, but, um, I won't use numbers to prescribe efforts. Like I won't say a two out of 10. I'll say, okay, I just want you to go, you know, nice and easy today. There's no need to push the pace, you know, whatever the pace ends up being, that's the outcome. And so be it, but just nice and easy, you know, uh, relaxing sort of not relaxing, but a fairly smooth and an and easy day. Um, and I will use paces sometimes if it's necessary, like if we're doing track intervals or something, of course you use paces, or at least ranges and paces. And I think that's important. I think once you start prescribing very specific paces, that can have uh, disastrous effects, especially if an athlete's not feeling it that day and they can't hit the paces. Emotionally, that can be, that can beat themselves up. So I like to prescribe a fairly large range. Like I remember having an athlete, they were doing um, thousand meter repeats. Um, this is a senior in high school. Uh, on a gravel loop around a lake. And, and um, I think the range was like 30 seconds. It was oh, like gosh. <laughs> 320 to like 350 or something. Yeah, and the yeah. kid's like, what is that? I was like, well, let's totally go. Yeah, those right? are totally different. And, and then if you're, if you're not feeling great today, we'll just, we'll keep it at 345 to 350. If you're feeling great, we'll see what happens kind of thing. But the point is, you know, you have to have a goal. And I like to prescribe goals of a workout. Like, yeah. You know, you, this is not supposed to be a hard session, you know, or it's not, it's not, it's not supposed to be all out kind of thing. So, but these terms can be frustrating for some, especially if they don't know what you mean. So it goes back to what I said earlier is clear communication and, and giving instructions that are, that the athlete can relate to and understand well, you know. But it's a simple, um, I mean, it's sim- simple, but not hard, right? It's time minutes, as you said, and yep. then a verbal yep. description of hard, medium, easy, like some. Yeah. What do you mean? Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think people often are get caught up also in paces because they need to know like what pace. Well, it depends. Like pace to me, pace is an outcome unless it's a specific thing that you're looking for. Right. Like on the track, if I'm doing, if you're doing two hundreds and you're trying to achieve a certain thing with a specific athlete, you might give them tighter paces. But if you're doing a session that's meant to basically um, increase aerobic uh, sort of capacity, you know, that depends on the day, honestly, like same thing with like thresholds, you know, people use heart rates for threshold, which I agree with, unless that day heart rate is crazy high for whatever reason, uh, that it doesn't quite work. So, you know, you have to be able to adapt. Like someone's on my, my tempo pace is five minute pace per mile. Like every day. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. How, how do you know how, like, how is that, you know, so it's about understanding how to adapt the paces, you know, yep. uh, and, and how to adapt the, the, you know, uh, based on effort. So that's the thing. Like if you prescribe effort, the pace will change, which is fine. You know, um, unless you're trying to hit a specific pace, but sometimes you go, you know what, today you need to suck it up. You know, we're going to push through these and, and get the paces down. Um, but other days like, look, it's early season or it's late season, <laughs> either, you know, it's, yeah. it's the extremes where you can, you have a lot more range in my opinion. You know, in the middle, you can like, okay, all right, let's get some work done today. It's going to suck. You're, you're supposed to be tired at this time um, and let's push through it kind of thing. But you have to be able to adapt that. And that's when the knowledge of, you know, physiology, biomechanics comes into play. Yeah, the, the micro um, dissection of, of intensity ranges, whether you're doing it by pace or by heart rate yeah. or power yeah. on the bike, yeah. has just gotten, it's just gotten out of control. And I keep coming back to the sentiment that your body is not that precise. It's not exactly. It's not close. Yeah. So if you're telling me that yeah. your cyclist in 220 watts is your zone 3x1 threshold, whatever you want to call it, or 155 yeah. beats per minute is your 
anaerobic threshold. It's not like that every day. There's a myriad of things that can affect that, and your body is just not quite that precise to give it that level of uh, that that level of scrutiny from an intensity yep. perspective. Exactly, and, and anyone who believes that the human body is predictable. Uh, is missing the mark, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Back to my Barada example earlier where you've got yeah. nine months of training laid out for you. It's like, really, does yeah. that really ever go to the plan like that? <laughs> Come on. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to leave, we're going to leave athletes with keep it simple, prescribe things yeah. by time and effort, right? Yeah. Or more, or, or more by using effort. You can yeah. prescribe using verb, verbal instructions that then give a range of efforts, right? Because, to me saying today I want you to run a three out of 10, like that's almost worse as saying eight thirty two pace. You know what I mean? Like, right, right. It, you know, cause like, Oh, I feel really bad. Like, how do you even gauge that? How do you even gauge it? Okay. Oh, this is a four. Okay. I'm going to slow down. Okay. This is a three. Oh, this is a two. I gotta go faster. You know? So it's hard to, you know, but you know, you might say uh, a two, a uh, two to five effort kind of thing, you know, not above five or something, you know? Um, but again, that's that specific instructions and communication with the athlete needs to be clear off the get-go. Yep. And yeah. as you know, as a coach, and I'll, I'll profess to this as well, there's no substitute for good communication. It should always, no, start, yeah, it should always start with that. How did you feel? Yeah. How did the workout go? Not what yep. was your heart rate for this? Yeah. What's your pace? What's your heart rate? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's going to be stressful. <laughs> 100%. Cool. You know? Yeah. Awesome. So, so Max, where can people learn more about your work? I'll link uh, in the show notes to all the papers that we referenced, but where they can, where can they interact with you and learn more about what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think like a lot of academics and sports scientists, I think Twitter is a good platform for that. I think there's some good solid exchanges on there and uh, a lot of dissemination of information. So that's probably the best way. Uh, and uh, my, uh, my uh, uh, tag is at uh, biomech max. So just, um, yeah, pretty straightforward. And I think there's a lot of good discussions on there. Isn't it awesome how that has unfolded? Yeah. I mean, it's cool. I mean, I, I, I was, I was reluctant to join Twitter or at least spend time on Twitter and sometimes like, okay, enough Twitter. Like I need to just, you know, get off the Twitter <laughs> and do something else. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's really sort of bridge the gap between, yeah. I think, uh, especially in the sports sciences, yeah. maybe not in like biochemistry or, you know, genetics, but in, in a, in a field like sports science and, and exercise science and biomechanics, where a lot of the work is applied that relates directly to, you know, athletes and coaches, it's really bridged the gap between, between the, these two areas. And it really opens up lines of communication, even with clinicians. Uh, I think that's, that's really been useful. I a hundred percent agree with that because whenever you can bridge the, like I said earlier, it's rare that you have coaches that are also like legitimate sports scientists and do research mm -hmm. and produce commentary yeah, and things yeah, like totally. that. It's, so the fact that there, that there are not that many people who do that, if you have a medium that connects all of those people, it's just so valuable. I mean, I can remember, you know, way before Twitter even existed and we got physical journal journal articles, we would have yeah. our interns go and like copy off the, you know, the relevant discussion points for the month from whatever <laughs> journal. And then we'd get all on it. We'd get on a conference call with people, you yeah. know, and it was just, and that was great. There were there there were a lot of awesome things that happened because of that way of disseminating information and then sure. trying to communicate and learn from it. But the biggest thing is is we were always like one year behind. <laughs> you know, yeah. it just took so long to get all that together. And now it could be really instant, which is cool. So yeah, it's uh it, it certainly has, has done that, you know. And, and luckily journals are moving away from the print versions and yeah. it's mostly just all online now, luckily. And uh um but I think, uh, and also a lot of people are disseminating information via, you know, these, you know, podcasts and yeah. infographics and things. So I, I, I certainly urge any sports scientists listening or, or people that are involved in sports scientists to, to like, to uh, agree to do podcasts and uh, infographics and contribute because nowadays, I mean, that's the way to share things, you know? hundred percent. Yeah. All right, man. Thanks for your time. I appreciate yeah, no it. Problem. Yeah. yeah, you guys go check out Max. He's a good Twitter to follow for sure. I've learned a lot from uh, following you and seeing, you know, kind of what you produce on that platform, both uh, on the on the journal side of it and then also on the social side of it. Awesome. Thanks, Jason. And there you have it. 
There you go. Much thanks to Max for coming on the podcast today. Really appreciate your time and your expertise. I learned a lot with that. I hope you guys did too by listening. If you think that your training is better served by weeding through some of these complicated variables of training load and training volume, and you want somebody to help you make sense out of that, we have a coach that is right for you. Our team of ultra marathon coaches is unparalleled in the industry, and we are always taking on new athletes that have audacious goals. So if you're interested in that, hit me up on social media, or you can go and see any of our training packages at trainright.com. As always, thank you guys for listening. Appreciate the heck out of each and every one of you, and we will see you out on the trails.